There was a knock one morning, a man was standing at my door. He said, hello, I'm from Halliburton, have you heard of us before? We'd like to lease your backyard to drill for natural gas. It's called hydraulic fracturing, and it is the very past for a clean energy future above the Marcella Stone. Plus, we'll give you lots of money and a new mobile phone. I said, you are a corporate crook. I don't believe the things you tell, and you can drive right off my property and then go straight to hell. No fracking way. No fracking way, I don't trust corporate salesmen, whatever they may say. No fracking way, no fracking way, no fracking way. No fracking way, no fracking way. Greetings and welcome to Frack You Very Much. That was David Rovix from the album Big Red Sessions. That was an excerpt from the song, No Fracking Way. If you want to see back episodes or listen to them, you can't really see them. Uh, listen to back episodes of Frack You Very Much. Just go to frackyouverymuch.com. If you want to follow on Twitter, that is at show. First up is a story from Cron.com, written by Sergio Chapa. Thousands of acres of land remain sealed off days after a blowout at a natural gas well belonging to Devon Energy between the Eagle Forge shale towns of Yorktown and Nordheim. The accident happened at a Devon Energy natural gas well near Cotton Patch Road and FM 952 in DeWitt County early Friday morning. No injuries were reported, but authorities evacuated rural families living within a two-mile radius of the blowout, which sent natural gas and other pollutants spewing into the sky and surrounding countryside. The cause of the accident is not clear, but in a statement released on Tuesday afternoon, Devon Energy reported that the company is working closely with local and state authorities and well control specialists to cap the well and to minimize damages. The company is providing lodging, meals, and other needs to the affected families. Quote, safety and environmental protection are our highest priorities during this process, Devon Energy spokesman John Pareto said in a statement. A number of steps have been taken to contain any fluid runoff at the well site to protect the surrounding environment. We'll begin assessing any necessary environmental cleanup as soon as it's safe to do so. The Yorktown Volunteer Fire Department reported that authorities shut down Cotton Patch Road FM 952 between State Highway 72 to Cabeza Road and FM 2656 in response to the accident. The two-mile radius sealed off by authorities is equal to more than 8,000 acres of land. Numerous residents and neighbors expressed concern on Facebook about their safety and the safety of their livestock, which the company assured the DeWitt County Office of Emergency Management would be taken care of. The Railroad Commission of Texas, the state agency that regulates the oil and natural gas industry, has dispatched an inspector to the site. Located on Devon Energy, Megura B. Lease, 
The well was originally drilled and completed by the shale drilling arm of British oil major BP, but was transferred to Devon on October 28. Railroad Commission records show. Devon brought in Houston oil well blowout specialist Great White Well Control to bring the well back under control, Railroad Commission officials reported. Sharon Wilson, Dallas-based anti-hydraulic fracturing activist with the environmental group Earthworks, said the rural poor continue to pay a heavy price for accidents in the oil fields and that regulators do not enforce the law. There have been at least nine blowouts in Texas through July of this year, Railroad Commission records show. Devon isn't Texas's first repeat offender or second, despite our state government's promises of responsible oversight, Wilson said. Because neither communities nor climate can trust either company or regulators, the only way to protect the public interest is to keep it in the ground. And for existing facilities, we need strong rules reliably, reliably and transparently enforced. In an initial report filed by Devon Energy with the Texas Commission on Environmental Quality, the company estimated that 12,000 pounds of natural gas will be released during the incident. Under state law, the company must file a final report with emissions data within two weeks after the end of the accident. TCEQ officials are monitoring air quality in the area and reported that there were no health risks found outside of the two-mile evacuation zone. Gunner Shade, an atmospheric studies researcher with Texas A&M University, told the Houston Chronicle that the TCEQ's air monitoring station in Carnes City, some 18 miles west of the accident, recorded elevated levels of carcinogens, benzene, and xylene on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Although they were temporary spikes, Shade said they were record levels, even for a region accustomed to oil and natural gas drilling. Quote, I've never seen benzene levels that high, Shade said. Next up is a story from Reuters. Pioneer Natural CEO calls out shale industry for Permian Basin gas flaring. The chief executive of Pioneer Natural Resources, Scott Sheffield, on Tuesday called on producers in the top U.S. shale field to limit natural gas flaring and monitor for methane leaks. Companies are targeting oil in the fast-growing Permian Basin field, but pipeline construction has lagged, leaving natural gas as a byproduct to be burned or vented. Producers should get flaring and venting rates to 2% or less and not drill wells before pipelines are complete, Sheffield said during a call with analysts a day after releasing quarterly results. Quote, We do not connect any new horizontal wells to production unless... The gas line is already in place, Sheffield said. I think that's something that should be adopted by all producers in the Permian Basin. His comments come as several oil and gas companies have pledged to limit leaks of methane, a potent greenhouse gas, and to reducing flaring and venting. Gas flaring and venting in the Permian in Texas and New Mexico reached a new high of 
750 million cubic feet per day in the third quarter, according to estimates released on Tuesday by Rystad Energy, up from 600 to 650 million cubic feet per day during the previous nine months. The upswing is being driven by more drilling and fracking, pipeline bottlenecks, and new production in areas that lack gathering lines and processing plants. Pioneer's flaring rate is around 1%, the second lowest in the basin behind Chevron Corp. According to an investor presentation with Rystad Energy Data, the average for its peer group was a 5% flaring rate. BP PLC, which took over BHP Petroleum's assets in the Permian in March and has a relatively small amount of production in the field, had a flaring and venting rate around 14%. Quote, we are working across our portfolio of new assets in the Permian Basin to reduce emissions, including flaring, a BP spokesman said by email, adding that the company is building central gathering and processing facilities to eliminate a large source of Permian flaring and will not bring new wells online unless they have access to a pipeline. Pioneer's low rate of flaring, quote, proves it, it can and should be done by all operators, said Colin Layden, Senior Manager of Regulatory and Legislative Affairs for the Environmental Defense Fund. And calling for concrete, actionable change across industry is important and needed. The Texas portion of the Permian's Delaware Basin accounted for 40% of the field's flaring and venting, Rystad said. And next is a story from weather.com. Earthquake activity increases in part of Texas heavy in oil and gas production. More than 2,000 earthquakes were recorded in one part of West Texas in 2017. The increase correlates with a rise in oil and gas production. A part of Texas that is being heavily developed for oil and gas production has seen a dramatic increase in earthquakes over the past decade, a new study shows. Researchers examined more than 7,000 seismic events in West Texas between 2000 and 2017, according to the study published this week in the Journal of Geophysical Research, Solid Earth. The analysis showed that a disproportionate number have happened in the last 10 years in an area near Picos, known as the Delaware Basin. The uptick began, began after 2007, when just one earthquake was recorded in the area. 19 earthquakes happened in 2009, and more than 2,000 Temblers were tracked in 2017. The study points out that seismic activity went up at the same time that petroleum production in the region increased, but it doesn't go so far as to make a direct conclusion. Quote, West Texas now has the highest seismicity rates in the state, study co-author and Southern Methodist University Associate Professor Heather Deshawn said in a press release. What remained uncertain is when the earthquakes actually started. This study addresses that. 
Several other studies have linked hydraulic fracturing, known as fracking, to a rise in earthquakes. Fracking is a process by which water is injected underground to create cracks in rocks to extract more crude oil and natural gas. The correlation has been especially well documented in Oklahoma, where earthquake activity hit a high in 2015 and then steadily dropped once rules on fracking were tightened. Texas established a statewide earthquake monitoring system in 2017, but the new research tapped into an older array of seismographs installed in the 1990s to help track nuclear testing across the world, according to the press release. Data from those sensors helped create an earthquake catalog for the Delaware Basin that goes back further than any other previous studies. Peter Hennings, a study co-author and researcher at the University of Texas Bureau of Economic Geology, said he hopes the research will help build, quote, an integrated understanding of the relationship between earthquakes and their human and natural causes. This next piece is from TheGuardian.com, written by Helen Pidd. It is a battle that has gone on for years, pitting tireless local residents and environmentalists against a major gas exploration company, hoping to get rich and solve a future energy crisis by fracking under the field coast. Last October, the government overruled Lancashire County Council and gave Quadrilla the green light to begin drilling but anti-fracking activists have refused to give up their fight. And this story, by the way, when it references dates or times, this story is from 2018. Throughout July, protesters from around the UK have joined worried locals on an A road just outside Blackpool for a month of rolling resistance. The aim, to make life as difficult as possible for Quadrilla, and its contractors as they attempt to build two wells in a 1.5 hectare field on Preston New Road. One morning last week, direct action began at dawn when two cars screeched into the site entrance, surprising Quadrilla's security guards as well as police officers stationed there 24 hours a day at a cost of well over £100,000 most months. The drivers quickly departed, according to police. In each car was a protester, one man and one woman, each locked onto a large and heavy object. For hours, a pair sat in the back seats until officers persuaded them to unlock themselves. Sergeant Paul Patterson from Lancashire Police said, Neither was arrested, but during the standoff, a big crowd gathered blocking the road, he said. The protesters, often several hundred strong, claim they managed to thwart or at least delay deliveries to the site most days. Quadrilla disagrees, saying its work remains, quote, unimpacted. The only people they are frustrating are local drivers, a spokeswoman suggested. Several times a week, the police close one lane of the road to deal with a steady stream of lock-ons, devices built from layers of plastic, bitumen, and concrete, which often take several hours to remove. Back in May, Bob Dennett was arrested for the first time in his life when he locked on at the gate, along with 11 others. 
while he waits for his court date to fight charges of obstruction of the highway and an obscure trade union law violation. He spends each day either at one of the three nearby protest camps or at Quadrilla's gate. Quote, This has been my life for the past six years, Dennett said. I have ten grandchildren who live around here. That's why I do this. Preston New Roads is pivotal to the anti-fracking fight, said Dennett, who claims to have lost 50,000 pounds because of a collapse in house prices near the drill site. Quadrilla is racing its rival Third Energy, which has a site in Kirby, Misperton, North Yorkshire, to be the first gas exploration company to frack since a moratorium was imposed following an earthquake on the field coast during earlier test drilling in 2011. Initially, many local residents were wary of the full-time activists who set up the protection camps by Preston New Road. Now the group seemed to mingle happily, sharing big vats of lentil dal and bulgur wheat pilaf, cooked by a community kitchen and eaten by the side of the road. Jan Goss, a mindfulness teacher from nearby Lytham, started visiting the protest a few months ago. Now she offers free relaxation sessions to stressed-out protesters. Last night I did a deep relaxation with someone who had come for 10 days. He had been sworn at and spat at by a person passing on a bush bike. He was saying how stressful it had been. This was a grown man in tears because of all the abuse he has been getting, she said. About two-thirds of passing motorists are supportive, reckons Goss, with more people honking horns and offering thumbs up than flicking V's and offering other choice signs. She has found a wonderful community at the gate, she said, despite people shouting, get a job and get a bath. The latest protests have received visitors from trade unionists and renewable energy practitioners, as well as a Native American from Standing Rock in North Dakota, who had protested against an oil pipeline being built very close to a Native American reservation. William Hawk had a stark warning for the Lancastrians after claiming the water supply in Standing Rock would be contaminated by the pipeline. Quote, it's going to happen here. Your water supply is going to be destroyed and your children will have nothing to live for, he said, before singing a song which moved some protesters to tears. Quadrilla insists it will protect water resources, including groundwater, aquifers. Another visitor was Rick Guest, age 67, who was dressed as Gandalf. Last year, he walked from his home in Hereford to Downing Street to lobby the government against fracking, dressed again as the Tolkien character. He'd come to Lancashire just for the day because, quote, this is the beginning of it, he said. This is the epicenter of the fracking industry, where it's going to start. If we can stop it here, we can hopefully Stop it everywhere. And stop it, they have. Quadrilla is no longer drilling there. In fact, no one in the UK is fracking any longer due to earthquakes and earthquake risk. Here is another piece from The Guardian. This is just written a week or so ago, November 5, 2019. Fracking is finished in the UK, thanks to the power of public protest. On Saturday morning, the UK government announced 
it would be halting fracking in England with immediate effect. Following years of opposition from local communities, the wider public, and other major political parties, the conservative government finally admitted defeat and announced a moratorium. It will, of course, try to claim a moratorium on fracking as a win for itself. But this is a victory for people power. For eight years, local communities have led this fight. Since work started in Lancashire 1,032 days ago, local people have been at the gates every single day. From Balcombe to Blackpool, Sherwood to Rydale, people power has defeated the fracking industry before it got off the ground. This victory is one of the biggest the climate movement has ever seen. The fight against fracking has been one of the most determined and disruptive in British history. The Preston New Road site was often the flashpoint, the stretch of a road leading to it, becoming a microcosm of hope, where a heady mixture of community strength and international solidarity provoked thousands of activists to block the gates of Quadrilla's site. The campaign employed a variety of tactics. There were responses and interventions in the planning process, as well as public meetings run by the Nanas, a group of female activists known for their creative protests, who distributed cakes while inspiring fellow protesters with their passion. And you can hear a story about the Nanas on a previous episode of Frack You Very Much. Come rain or shine, protesters spent years forming creative and effective blockades at the gates of sites across the country, with hundreds of arrests and one unprecedented and three ultimately unjust prison sentences. This fight wasn't just the preserve of environmental activists. It spanned local communities and led to generations of families resisting together. They were always going to win because they would never give up driven at their core by love instead of profit. The government justified this moratorium following a report from the Oil and Gas Authority that found it was impossible to rule out, quote, unacceptable consequences for communities surrounding fracking sites. It's important to remember that we've known this from the very beginning. This decision is not the result of the shock findings of one report, but the power of a movement that is opposed fracking at every turn. In August, after a fracking, after a fracking triggered 2.9 magnitude, magnitude earthquake, work was stopped at the industry's flagship site in Blackpool. This was tremor number 134 in a 22-day period. If the industry was really so worried about safety, things would never have got this far. Some are concerned about it only being a temporary halt, but this move is the end of fracking in the UK. Though neither permanent nor perfect on paper, the underlying conditions mean we've reached a point of no return. Economically, technically, and environmentally, fracking is simply not viable. Last year, a report from Friends of the Earth showed that a staggering 6,000 shale gas wells would be needed to replace just half the UK's gas imports over a 15-year period. 
with just one site barely functioning in Lancashire and existing in a state of purgatory thanks to relentless protests, the industry has proven to be unscalable. On Monday, a further blow to the industry came in the form of the announcement that fracking would not be categorized as, quote, nationally significant infrastructure. This ruling was another failed attempt by the Conservatives to bypass the planning system and the voices of local people. They had also proposed having fracking classed as, quote, permitted development, which basically equated the permission required to set up a fracking site with that needed for a garden shed. But again, the tireless activism around the country halted the proposal in its tracks, with 800 councillors voicing their disapproval of the policy after public pressure. This mass public opposition forced the Conservatives into silence until Monday's discreet update. George Osborne signaled the Conservatives' dogged pursuit of fracking in 2012 with his, his announcement of a, quote, dash for gas when Scotland banned fracking in 2017. Theresa May disagreed with the decision saying fracking, quote, had a role to play in the UK. Even last year, despite dwindling support, she was still pushing hard for its continuation because of the, quote, impact it can have on our future energy security. Their threats to weaken regulations and attempts to bypass the planning system signaled their desperation to establish the new fossil fuel industry. In 2017, the Conservative Manifesto called for a fracking revolution, that they're putting a moratorium on fracking in advance of an election two years later, shows how national opposition and a grassroots movement have forced their hand. The timing of Saturday's announcement should not be ignored. It would be naive to believe this move wasn't a strategic ploy to secure marginal seats in next month's elections in areas with fracking licenses. But that move in itself marks a monumental victory. Make no mistake, this is a huge win for local campaigners and the final nail in the coffin of the fracking industry in the UK. And this piece is from the Washington Times, written by Valerie Richardson. House Democrats block GOP effort to prevent nationwide fracking ban. House Democrats blocked Tuesday consideration of a resolution in support of hydraulic fracturing as Republicans sought to protect the U.S. energy boom from Democratic presidential candidates seeking to ban fracking nationwide. The resolution, sponsored by Representative Rob Bishop, Utah Republican, affirmed that states should, quote, maintain primacy for the regulation of hydraulic fracturing for oil and natural gas production on state and private lands, and that no president should impose a moratorium without congressional approval. In recent weeks, many of the Democratic candidates for president have pledged to ban hydraulic fracturing in the United States, a campaign promise straight out of the Keep It in the Ground playbook, said Representative Debbie Lesko, Arizona Republican, in a floor speech. Senators Kamala Harris, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren, all 2020 Democratic presidential hopefuls, have called for a nationwide ban on fracking 
and extraction process used in the vast majority of U.S. natural gas production. Quote, any proposal to avert the climate crisis must include a full fracking ban on public and private lands, Mr. Sanders tweeted last month. Ms. Lesko argued that fracking is already heavily regulated by states, adding that the fracking revolution has reduced energy bills and greenhouse gas emissions as natural gas replaces coal in U.S. electricity generation. Quote, after the introduction of hydraulic fracturing techniques, U.S. gas bills fell by $13 billion collectively every year from 2007 to 2013, she said. All the while, natural gas production using fracking is driving the lowest emissions levels in a generation. Such a moratorium would force the increasingly energy-independent United States to rely once again on foreign oil and natural gas imports, she added. Fracking foes have argued that the process creates health risks for nearby communities, which the industry denies, and contributes to the climate crisis by encouraging the use of fossil fuels instead of green energy. In 2016, a federal judge struck down the Obama administration's fracking regulations, ruling that the states have authority over the process. Kathleen Sagama, president of Western Energy Alliance, said that even though even though no vote was held, the resolution served as a useful reminder to Democrats that, quote, the president does not have the authority to ban fracking. It's kind of a proactive measure to buttress the fact that there's no federal mechanism to regulate fracking, she said, adding, quite frankly, I'm not really afraid of a President Warren's executive order on fracking because it's just such an overreach. It's so beyond presidential power that the industry would sue the next day and we would win in court. And this from the MissoulaCurrent.com by Laura Lundquist. Radioactive fracking waste could end up in Missoula landfill. The state of Montana could decide to allow significant, um, significant amounts of radioactive fracking waste in local landfills, and some of it could end up in Missoula's backyard. This week, the State Department of Environmental Quality closed its comment period on a new limit for the amount of technologically enhanced radioactive material, called TENORM, that landfills can accept. DEQ wants to set the radiation limit at 200 picocuries per gram of two variants or isotopes of radium. But that is four times what the agency proposed back in August 2017, and four times more than any other state allows, including North Dakota, home of the Bakken oil fields. DEQ officials say they'll take about the next six months to decide what to do. Public health and environmental groups are questioning why the agency is proposing such a large jump, especially because most tenorm waste comes from North Dakota. Well, there's your answer right there. The, the waste that's too dangerous to be uh, landfilled in North Dakota, they want to ship over the border to Montana. So if you have weaker regulations, they'll be able to do that. They'll be able to dump their waste that's too toxic for them to dump in their own state 
in your state. But I digress. Common items emit some radiation, but at very low levels, including bananas and Brazil nuts at about 5 pci per gram, and coffee and granite countertops at 27 pci per gram. Naturally occurring radioactive material, or NORM, includes certain naturally radioactive ores extracted, extracted from mines, and those are regulated above certain limits. However, fracking pulls similar radioactive particles from deep in the earth and concentrates them, increasing their intensity, so it's considered technologically enhanced, or tenorm. Different parts of the fracking process end up being more radioactive than others. Filter devices called socks separate mineral sludge from the fracked oil or gas, so socks and sludge develop a highly concentrated radioactivity level according to the Western Organization of Resource Councils. That's why the Coral Creek landfill near Baker accepts tenorm waste, but refuses to take socks because they, quote, always exceed the analytical limits for radioactivity. This and other more highly radioactive material ends up in radioactive waste repositories. While Tenorm currently is more of an eastern Montana concern, Missoula's Republic Services is one of four landfills in the state that has a permit to accept radioactive fracking waste, although it has yet to do so. In 2016, David Seeberger of Republic Services said he was looking forward to the new Tenorm rules and that a new landfill glass, glass flare system had been installed at the Missoula landfill, according to DEQ Solid Waste Advisory Committee minutes. Even though it's across the state from North Dakota, Missoula could receive tenorm waste shipped by rail. In 2017, Robert Sachovka of the Cornerstone Environmental Group wrote, quote, As waste exporting states find it more difficult to transport trash longer distances, the industry is looking to rail service to move its material more economically. The Missoula Current made multiple calls to Donald Moss, the acting general manager who replaced Glenda Bradshaw, asking if Republic Services would accept fracking tenorm at Missoula's landfill, and to what level. None of the calls were returned. Why is DEQ trying to create a tenorm limit? Fracking is a relatively new thing, and oil and gas companies started moving tenorm waste around before any regulations were developed. Once the Environmental Protection Agency was finally forced by a 2016 lawsuit to address the issue, it stalled. Under the Trump administration, the EPA has now refused to set limits, announcing in May that it would leave fracking tenorm regulation up to the states. That's resulted in a patchwork from states that take varying levels of tenorm to those that refuse to take any. If Montana ups its level to 200 PCI per G, it would allow the highest radiation levels of any state, and some are predicting that would cause even more waste to flow into the treasure state. But that's what some people want. In 2014, Ross Oakland, former owner of Oaks Disposal near Glendive, complained that before he opened his facility in 2013, 
Montana was losing business because all of North Dakota's waste was being sent to Colorado or Idaho. Oak's disposal was the one facility certified to accept the highest amount of radiation, currently 50 PCI per G, and North Dakota wasted no time taking advantage of it. Now almost 80% of the tenorm at Oak's disposal, now owned by a Colorado company, comes from North Dakota. The only problem is nearby residents are reporting problems with their water. DEQ's quarterly tests showed the groundwater has had, quote, significant increases in chloride and radium, although the levels are still acceptable. So DEQ required Oak's disposal to increase the size of its storm ponds to prevent overflow and runoff into the groundwater. Groundwater contamination is one of the main issues with tenorm waste, and in Missoula, that could be a significant concern, as the public water supply comes from a single-source aquifer that runs beneath the valley. That's why the Northern Plains Resource Council commended the DEQ for proposing that groundwater be tested by an independent party. But the organization argued against DEQ allowing landfills to do their own environmental monitoring and not requiring stormwater ponds to be lined. And even North Dakota requires thicker landfill liners. But it's the 200 PCI per G limit that bothers the Northern Plains Resource Council, Montana Environmental Information Center, and others the most. In addition to groundwater contamination, radiation is a safety concern for landfill workers. For them, the risk of radiation increases if they inhale tenorm dust, and lung cancer is a primary associated hazard. But a 2016 Argonne National Laboratory study found a landfill limit of 50 PCI per G is, quote, likely to be protective, keeping workers from exceeding the annual public safety limit of 100 millirems of radiation, as long as a worker spends only half of their work time on site. Where do they spend the rest of their work time? But how can they work if the tenorm level becomes four times greater? Quote, it's really an understudied issue, said Yale University epidemiologist Nicole Diziel. The fracking industry took off before the health impacts were studied. That's pretty common with environmental exposure problems, but an absence of data doesn't equate to an absence of risk. Desiel has conducted reviews of health problems related to living near fracking facilities and found 25 of 29 studies that show some adverse effect. But scientists have looked for related health issues only since 2013, so most studies were initiated at least a decade after the start of modern fracking. Scientists have investigated little related to the indirect effects of fracking, such as radiation issues from waste. It may be another decade before any related health or environmental problems appear from that, if limits keep increasing. DEQ is getting ready to finalize a 50 PCI per G limit in August 2017. Why is it now so much more? As the process dragged out, DEQ never finalized the 50 PCI per G rule and was asked to increase the limit. According to the minutes of the Solid Waste Advisory Committee, DEQ started revising the proposed rule after considering the 1,000 public comments received in September 2017. 
Six months later, members of the advisory committee asked to see the revised draft, but were told they couldn't see it until it was ready. Then in October 2018, the revisions were presented to the Tenorm Working Group, which met at the Board of Oil and Gas Buildings in Billings. The working group had originally proposed the 50 PCI per G limit in 2017. Some said they were notified of the change to 200 PCI per G just as a matter of courtesy. So it's not clear who proposed the higher radiation limit. It could have been Tenorm facility managers worried about having to compete if North Dakota ever certifies one of its landfills for Tenorm. If both states have the same limit, back-end producers are likely to prefer closer landfills. North Dakota set its 50 PCI per G limit in 2016, but is only now getting around to permitting the first landfill near Williston. Part of the delay is due to pushback from neighbors and environmental groups worried about water runoff, similar to the worries of Montanans faced with an even higher radiation level. But some say Montana's higher limit was due to the influence of the oil and gas industry. Specifically, Montana Petroleum Association Executive Director Alan Olson. Calls to Montana Petroleum Association spokesperson Jessica Cena were not returned by press time. Calls to DEQ, so DEQ Solid Waste Manager Rickhold Thompson were also not returned. But DEQ Waste Bureau Chief Ed Thamke recently told WasteDive.com the limit wouldn't be a problem because he expects loads exceeding 200 PCI per G would be rare and facilities will still need to maintain a 50 PCI per G average. The majority of loads coming to the Oaks facility in the last six years were below 50 PCI per G, according to Montana DEQ. And one last story for this episode. This article was produced by Earth Food Life, a project of the Independent Media Institute. And this is published on citizentruth.org. How things got so fracking bad in Ohio. Hydraulic fracturing, savior or sin. That depends on who you ask. The fossil fuel industry and its proponents tout fracking's economic benefits as this oil and gas extraction technique has led the march towards the nation's energy independence. But as our understanding of the technique grows, so too does our knowledge of its many drawbacks. Nowhere is this dynamic more apparent than in Ohio, at the vanguard of the nation's fracking boom, thanks to the Utica and Marcellus shale reserves to the east of the state, which have sparked something of a fossil fuel industry feeding frenzy over the past decade. The amount of natural gas Ohio produces annually ballooned from 78 billion cubic feet in 2010 to nearly 1.8 trillion cubic feet in 2017, an increase of more than 2,200% according to federal figures. And what kind of impact has this had? Between 2007 and 2016, employment in Ohio's shale industries grew 62%. 
A new ethane cracker plant is reported to bring hundreds more full-time jobs to Ohio's Belmont County. When Vice President Mike Pence trumpeted to the assembly crowd at the Oil and Gas Association's annual meeting earlier this year in Columbus that the energy industry was, quote, strengthening the foundation under families here in Ohio and all across this nation, he was met with warm applause. Ten years on, though, tough questions are being asked, not just of the industry's economic impact in Ohio's poor Appalachian heartland, but also of the damage it's causing to the environment, the climate, and human health. Quote, it's impacting people locally, Ned Ketier, a medical advisor with the Pennsylvania-based nonprofit Environmental Health Project, told the Independent Media Institute. It's impacting their health. It's impacting regional health. It's impacting local and regional economies in a negative way. And ultimately, it's affecting the climate system in a way that's completely contrary to any kind of urgent climate solutions that we need to embrace right now. The growing literature surrounding the environmental impacts from fracking is already pretty broad. The Environmental Protection Agency's own years-long study concluded that fracking operations have contaminated drinking water resources and have led to inadequately treated wastewater being dumped into surface water sources. Scientific and government research links fracking with an increased likelihood of earthquakes. Then there's the issue of the industry's climate footprint at a time when a drastic reduction in greenhouse gas emissions is needed to avoid some of the worst impacts from global warming. The National Aeronautics and Space Administration found last year that emissions from the oil and gas industry were a major contributor to growing atmospheric levels of methane, an especially potent greenhouse gas. A new study out of Cornell University came to the same conclusion, linking a global spike in methane emissions to the fracking of shale gas. In Ohio, some of the localized environmental impacts make for a stark reading. A recent article in State Impact Pennsylvania, part of an excellent series looking at the industry's environmental footprint in Ohio and Pennsylvania, details complaints among residents living in close proximity to fracking infrastructure of things like gas leaks, drinking water contamination, and discoloration, as well as fish kills. Fish aren't the only kind of wildlife at risk. Cornell University found a possible link between exposure to glass drilling, gas drilling operations and cases of illness, death, and reproductive issues in cows, horses, goats, llamas, chickens, dogs, and cats in fracking states like Ohio. Quote, We know the industry doesn't pay for its harm and the environmental damage that it causes. Amy Mall, a senior advocate with the Natural Resources Defense Council, told the Independent Media Institute. She added that federal regulatory loopholes are a large part of the problem. For example, if oil and gas wastewater were subject to federal hazardous waste rules rather than generic standards that apply to all non-hazardous solid waste, quote, it would be regulated very differently at the state level, Mall pointed out. This at a time when nearby states transport huge quantities of wastewater to Ohio for disposal. Quote, by not being held accountable for their pollution, 
the industry is shifting a lot of the economic responsibilities to general society, she said. There's increasing awareness, too, surrounding the possible human health toll from living too close to fracking infrastructure. Issues like cancer, preterm births, low birth weight babies, and asthma. The Physicians for Social Responsibility's latest compendium on fracking health impacts comprises more than 1,700 peer-reviewed studies. Elsie Elliott, a postdoctoral fellow at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, participated in a community-based study in Ohio looking at proximity to oil and gas wells and the impact that might have on human health and water contamination. The researchers found that the closer Ohioans live to these wells, the more likely they are to suffer general health problems like stress and fatigue. Likewise, proximity to wells was associated with higher concentrations of contaminants in the water. Nevertheless, there's still a dearth of hard data, say experts, when it comes to understanding exactly how the fracking boom might be impacting the health of Ohioans. Agencies charged with overseeing the industry report how residents only rarely file official health complaints. Quote, we were noticing in the literature that Ohio wasn't as well researched as some other regions in the U.S., said Elliott, explaining why that state was chosen for the community health study. It also helps explain why Elliott urges caution when it comes to directly linking health issues with exposure to some of the contaminants, air pollutants like benzene, hydrogen sulfide, and formaldehyde, typically found around fracking sites, at least right now. Quote, our knowledge on this is definitely growing, she said, but we're not quite there yet to say definitively what it does. She urged continued research in the field, such as the potential link between fracking and childhood leukemia. On the flip side, proponents of the fracking boom argue that the economic benefit to Ohio outweighs any deleterious effects. Quote, it's a very, very sizable industry, says Gilbert Michaud, an adjunct assistant professor of economics at Ohio University, who has studied the impact the fossil fuel industry has had on the state's economy. According to his own calculations, the shale industry's direct and indirect impact on the state in 2015, including that through employment, wages, and the multiplier effect, amounted to more than $22 billion. But how widely felt is this impact? The nonprofit Ohio Education Policy Institute finds how fracking generated tax revenue has helped to bridge the wealth gap between school districts, particularly in Eastern Ohio. But a deeper look reveals a more complex picture. For example, broad underfunding for elementary education means the statewide wealth disparity still exists between rich and poor school districts. And his 2018 study, Michaud warned of the, quote, less desirable vestiges of fracking in the poor rural areas of Appalachian, Ohio. Quote, the shale industry may be another case of resource extraction with a failure to capture and retain local value, he wrote. Michaud told the Independent Media Institute how the largest employing sector of Ohio's shale industry is pipeline construction which typically offers a short window of employment. 
Once the infrastructure is in place, then those occupations aren't really needed, he said, adding that these jobs typically go to out-of-state workers anyway. On top of that, those sectors that provide more stable long-term employment to Ohioans, like jobs at the well pad itself, generally pay the industry smaller wages, said Michaud. That's not really the secret sauce for future prosperity, right? Then there's the issue of too little of the fiscal windfall trickling down into poor rural communities that constitute the industry's heartland, he said. This leaves already underfunded local services stretched to breaking point as they grapple with fracking's residual environmental and health problems. Quote, a lot of these impacts aren't being retained in these communities that desperately need positive economic development and jobs, said Michelle. This is your quintessential Appalachian curse, your resource extraction boom and bust cycle. Describing the shale industry in Ohio as a petrochemical cluster frack, environmental health projects Ned Ketier agrees with Michaud's assessment. Any job that directly threatens the health of me or my family or my patients, I'm a pediatrician, or that threatens the health of every child, even children who haven't been born, by accelerating climate change, those jobs are not worth supporting, he said, adding that essentially in the Ohio River Valley, we're fracking for plastic, which is one thing nature doesn't need any more of. The pathway towards renewables is a complicated one in Ohio. However, in 2014, for example, the state imposed a two-year freeze on its renewable and energy efficiency standards and currently is in second to last place in the country in terms of total electricity production from renewable sources, just ahead of Delaware. According to Ketier, other reasons for an expedited switch to renewables exist in plain sight. Quote, it really is an eye-opening thing to take a drive through the Ohio River Valley. This is an area that should not have such high levels of air pollution, some of the worst air pollution in the country. Shouldn't have such high levels of ozone, said Ketcher, describing scenes of rural poverty, dilapidated roads, and crumbling buildings interspersed with oil and gas industry infrastructure. When you go through the Ohio Valley, you see an area that should be achingly beautiful. And that'll wrap up this episode of Frack You Very Much, a fracking terrible podcast. If you want to check out back episodes, just go to frackyouverymuch.com or follow on Twitter at FYVM Show. And from the album Things That Grow, this is Tracy Howe with Frack Me. Thanks for listening. I 
If there are no 